So this morning we open a new series uh, through some of the parables that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 13. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Matthew chapter 13 is where we're going to be this morning and for the next several weeks together. Um, we're going to start in a parable that, uh, not where Jesus starts, but it's where we're going to start uh, in Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 31, and we'll read down through verse 33. It'll be on the screen for you as well if you don't have a copy of the Bible in front of you this morning. But Jesus tells these parables in Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 31, he says, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now listen, we, we, you and I live in a very tumultuous time, right? I, I think if you, any news feed that you pull up, whether it be on social media or on websites that you frequent, or if you watch the evening news, actually pick up a paper, printed newspaper, Starbucks, wherever you might find yourself, uh, you'll see headlines that plaster the pages about all of the conflict that exists in our day and age. Uh, we live in a very tumultuous time, and there's perhaps no better indication of that than when you look at the political landscape uh, in our nation currently. And listen, as, as all of us move toward uh, Election Tuesday on November 8th, uh, making decisions about who we will vote for, if we will vote, whose name we're going to write in, maybe on the ballot, um, because we're not real thrilled with any of the major party candidates that they're rolling out there and their platforms, um, one of the things that I think we need to be reminded of in this time is that, listen, uh, there's, no matter who it is that gets nominated for a particular party or gets elected into office, no matter who is, wins the election on November 8th or who takes the oath of office in January, they will not be able to save us. <laughs> Do you know that by now? I hope you know that by now. Back in 2007, Derek Webb uh, released an album entitled The Ringing Bell, and on that album there was a song titled Savior on Capitol Hill. And this is how the first couple of verses of that song go. He says, I'm so tired of these mortal men with their hands on their wallets and their hearts full of sin, scared of their enemies and scared of their friends. It's a bad place to be, isn't it? Always running for re-election. So come to D.C. if it be thy will, because we've never had a savior on Capitol Hill. You can trust the devil or a politician to be the devil or a politician. That was funny to me. <clears throat> but beyond that, friends, you best beware, because at the Pentagon bar, they're an inseparable pair. As long as the lobbyists are paying their bills, we'll never have a savior on Capitol Hill. So long as someone can be bribed or bought and work their way into office, they'll never be able to eradicate all the wrongs and fix all of the injustice that exists within our culture. We'll never have a savior who gets elected into office or who serves a term as a president. So as we go to the polls in a couple of weeks, uh, I'll, I'll give you a, my write-in candidate. His name is David Bolton. <laughs> David is, is, a, is a moral and fiscal conservative. Um, <laughs> Currently resides in Point, Texas, uh, was a former elder here at Redeemer Church, has not yet announced his candidacy, but I have a feeling after the groundswell that it will follow this message this week, uh, that he'll be standing on the Hunt County Courthouse steps by Friday to announce his candidacy for president. 
I hope you realize that's a joke. I don't think David will ever run for office. Uh, That man is enjoying his peace and quiet out in Point, Texas. But the point is this, that no matter who you write in on your ballot and no matter who you may punch the ticket for, they will never be our Savior because what we need as people is not a a president elected into office, but a king. We need a king. That's the consistent testimony of the Scriptures. That only a king is able to save us. Only a king is able to right all of the wrongs. Only a king is able to overturn all of the injustice. Only a king is able to lead us into everlasting life and joy and peace. And in Matthew's gospel is the gospel of the king and the kingdom. It's the gospel of the king and the kingdom. Over and over again you see the, the, the idea of kingship and the idea of kingdom surfacing in Matthew's gospel time and time and time and time again. So that's one of the main themes that runs from Matthew chapter 1 all the way to the end of his gospel account of the king and the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 1 verse 6, in in, in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus and where he's come from, he makes it very clear that Jesus is in the line of David because God had promised David that one of his descendants would always sit on the throne and rule over his people and that Jesus is that promised king. Who will be born. In Matthew chapter 2 verse 2. When the Magi come from the east and are looking for Jesus. They show up at Herod's place. And they ask Herod. Hey listen where is the one who has been born what? King of the Jews. So they're looking for a king. Doesn't, doesn't sit very well with Herod because it challenges his authority and his kingship. When John the Baptist wanders out of the woods in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, after he's eating locusts and honey out there in the wilderness, and he wanders out of the woods and he begins to preach, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, it's breaking in right now because the king has arrived, Jesus has shown up, and his kingdom is beginning to, to, to break into human history. And so the question is this, because most of, the, most of us are familiar with kingdoms that consist of political capitals or geographic boundaries or eras of history. But Jesus' kingdom doesn't look like any of those. In fact, in John chapter 18, when Pilate's pushing him on his identity, he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' response to him in that dialogue is this, that my kingdom, it's not of this world. It's not of this world. So what does Jesus mean by that? I think he means at least several things. First of all, it's not about political advancement. It's not about having a capital, a place on a map. It's, 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 it's not, about, not defined by geographic boundaries or areas of history. Right, if you think about all the great empires that have existed throughout human history, you think of the Romans and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Aztecs and the, and the Mongols and the Ottomans and all these empires that have existed across the globe throughout human history. All of them had an expiration date, but this kingdom does not. It continues on. Nations rise and fall. Kings are, move into power and are overthrown. But this king and his kingdom continue to press forward. Jesus' kingdom is not about the subjugation of people like other earthly, worldly kingdoms are. It's about the salvation of people. It's not about, it's not about dictating to them, but about delivering them. It's what Jesus has come. This is the, some of the markers of his kingdom. It doesn't look like kingdoms do in this world. And so here's what we want to do over the next several weeks together. We want to get a glimpse of what Jesus' kingdom is like. And the way that Jesus gives us a glimpse of what his kingdom is like is through telling us stories, giving us analogies or metaphors. He says, the kingdom is like, 
And he does it over and over and over again in Matthew chapter 13. So before we get to those two parables, one, one more quick piece of foundational information for the next couple of weeks that we're going to be in Matthew 13 together. When you think about the kingdom, when you think about Jesus' kingdom, here's what we're talking about. We're talking about the righteous and redemptive rule of God. That's what the kingdom is. It's the righteous and redemptive rule of God through Jesus Christ, who is the king. So Jesus is the king. His kingdom is his righteous and redemptive rule in human history. The prophets predicted that God would raise up a king who would execute justice and he would do righteousness. And that the citizens of his kingdom, they would begin to walk in his ways and observe his statutes as well. So Jesus' kingdom is characterized by righteousness, but also by redemption. You see, when Jesus exercises, or when God exercises his kingly authority in the Old Testament, one, one of the, perhaps the, the most brilliant picture of that is in the, the, the Exodus, right? God basically gets into the octagon with Pharaoh, and they go toe-to-toe for ten rounds, and God wears him down and overthrows him to assert he is the great king over all the earth. No matter what kings rise into power and are venerated and honored, that God is the great king of all creation. And so God defeats Pharaoh, leads his people out, and a part of him exercising his kingly authority is to redeem his people from slavery and bondage and captivity and to lead them into the land that he had promised to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so God's rule is righteous. It's characterized by righteousness because he is righteous and he does righteousness and he executes justice, but it's also redemptive. It's also redemptive because he's aiming to rescue, he's aiming to save, he's aiming to restore. So when we talk about the kingdom for the next several weeks, that's what we're talking about. God's righteous and redemptive rule in and through Jesus Christ. So what is this kingdom like? And that brings us to Matthew chapter 13. Now these two parables obviously aren't where Jesus starts, but this is where where we're going to start this morning as we consider what the kingdom is like. And there's two big things that we're going to look at this morning about what this kingdom that Jesus is, his rule and reign is like. The first one is this, we want to see from these parables, is that the kingdom, it is expansive. It is expansive. When you look at the first parable that Jesus tells that we read there together in chapter 13, verse 31... He tells the parable of the mustard seed. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He says the kingdom is like a, if you've ever seen a mustard seed, and you've probably heard, if you've been in church at all in your life, you've probably heard somebody say this before, the mustard seed is a really tiny, minuscule seed. If you held it in your hand, it would look like a speck of dirt. But whenever you cultivate the ground and you plant that seed into the ground and you water that seed and you care for that seed and it begins to shoot up into a sprig and then it grows and its base widens out and it expands horizontally and vertically, it grows, he says, to be the largest of the garden plants. It grows to about 12 feet tall in ancient Palestine. And it was tall enough for the birds of the air to come and make nests in its branches. The branches were substantial enough and, 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 and thick enough for the birds to nest there and find shelter and find shade and find refuge and find security and find safety. 
Now what Jesus is doing in this parable is he's picking up on Old Testament language because in the Old Testament oftentimes the birds of the air were a reference to the nations of the world. In fact, in some of the judgment texts in the Old Testament, it talks about Israel being kind of laid out bare like a corpse and the birds of the air coming to pick off of her bones. Pretty interesting image there, right? And so the birds of the air are the nations of the earth. In fact, in Ezekiel, Ezekiel uses a very similar language to describe what God would do through Israel and plant in Ezekiel 17 and breaking off a twig of the cedar tree, planting it on a high mountain in Israel and it growing to be this massive tree which would provide safety, shelter, refuge, and rest for the birds of the air. So what Jesus is saying here in, in, in Matthew chapter 13 verses 31 to 33 is this or 32, those two verses about this parable of the mustard seed is that the kingdom, the God's righteous and redemptive rule, while it starts small, very minuscule, looks like a speck of dirt in the hand, it doesn't stay small, but it grows and it expands. It's expansive. That's what Jesus is saying. And it's expansive to the corners of the earth, to the ends of the earth, as it spreads through peoples and places and times and seasons that it continues to grow, that it continues to expand. The kingdom, Jesus says, is expansive. And it provides a home for all kinds of peoples from all kinds of places. Now listen, Jesus doesn't just predict this, but this is actually what unfolds. This is the beauty of it. This is the beauty of it. I want you to think about it with me for a moment, where the kingdom of God is breaking into human history, the rule and reign of God breaking in starts. It starts with a baby and a manger, doesn't it? With this tiny infant who is born in this, out, not, not in one of the big palaces with all kinds of prestige, but is born in a manger, in a feed trough. It's a baby that is born, and that baby would grow in the wisdom and the stature and the knowledge of God and man. And he would grow up and be raised and he would teach with authority and he would minister with mercy with all the massive crowds that would press in around him. And this, this, this child who grew into a man would one day be betrayed and handed over to the Romans and he'd be crucified and he'd be buried and he would stay in the tomb for three days and then he would rise from the grave. And before he sends into the, ascends into the heavens, he gathers his followers together and he says, I'm ascending you to the ends of the earth. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. And then Jesus ascends into heaven and the angel says, just as he has left, you shall see him return. And then John gets this glimpse in Revelation chapter 11 verse 15 where John says there's a day that's coming which all of us will at some point see and say that the kingdom of this world has become the, kingdoms of our God, the kingdom of our God and his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever and ever. But until that day comes, when the king returns, the kingdom continues to expand because the story goes on. Jesus gathers for himself a handful of misfits I love it, right? A handful of misfits, men without pedigree and without credentials, who were unimpressive, unimportant, oftentimes ignorable in their society. The, all the other rabbis and teachers had passed them over. They had gone to learn the trades of their families. They were not the pick of the litter, the cream of the crop by any stretch of the imagination. Start small, insignificant, ignorable. 
And what happens through those men, I love the book of Acts. Because in the book of Acts in chapter 17, Paul and Silas are on one of their missionary journeys and they walk into the city of Thessalonica and they begin to proclaim the gospel there. And the Jews there get enraged because they go before the city leaders and this is what they say to them in Acts chapter 17. They say, these men who have turned the world upside down have now come here. (laughs) These men... Have, have, it's, it's phenomenal. These two men, Paul and Silas, who have been traveling and preaching the gospel and planting churches, they've now come here. And the Jews are outraged by it. And yet even their outrage can't stop the expansion of the kingdom. Can you imagine, I want you to think with me for a moment, what would it, would it have been like to be in, in that room in Acts chapter 13? Whenever the church was gathered and they're worshiping and they're praying and the Holy Spirit taps them on the shoulder and says, set apart Saul and Barnabas to send them out. Set apart Saul and Barnabas to send them out. You think in their wildest imaginations that those who are gathered there in, the, in that room in Antioch could have, could have conceived of the kind of ripple effect that that act of obedience to the Holy Spirit whenever he tapped them on the shoulder would have had in their generation in places like Ephesus and Philippi and Galatia and Corinth and Rome and on the islands of Crete and Cyprus. Do you think they would have had any, any conceived to, the, to the, the smallest fraction of what that impact would be? As they sent these people out. This one act of obedience to the Holy Spirit when he tapped them on the shoulder and said, send them out. And yet they did. And so what happened? The kingdom expanded. Do you think they would have had any conceived of the fact that there would be people sitting in Highview Learning Center in Fate, Texas on October 30th, 2016 because Paul and and Barnabas, when the Holy Spirit, Spirit said, don't keep them here for yourself, but send them out to the nations the kind of ripple effect that that obedience would have had on places like South Africa and northern Russia from the Midwestern parts of the United States to the Middle East and even to our own local community. The kingdom of God is expansive. It starts off as a seed and it grows into a tree in which all kinds of peoples in all kinds of places can come and find shelter and shade and rest. That's what Jesus is saying here. The kingdom of God, his righteous and redemptive rule is expansive. Get to the end of the book of Acts in Acts 28 and you find Paul in prison awaiting trial with a desire burning in his heart to go to Spain, go westward to where the gospel has not yet been proclaimed because he understands that what God is doing is he's sending out branches to the corners of the world. 9-11 Not only is the kingdom expansive, second thing, but the kingdom is invasive. The kingdom is invasive. The righteous and redemptive rule of God is invasive. See, on the one hand, it's expanding and gaining ground globally as all kinds of people in all kinds of places are coming under the rule of Jesus. But on the other hand, his righteous and redemptive rule is invading and gaining ground inwardly, personally, in the hearts and lives of his people. 
the second parable that he tells there that we read together this morning in verse 33. It says he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Listen, in the, in, in the Bible, leaven kind of has a bad rap in a lot of places, okay? It, it really does. Lots of times it's a symbol for evil and its pervasiveness and how it spreads, but not here. No, here, leaven, leaven is an image of the powerful influence of something that is hidden, that works its way through an entire person and people. Something that's hidden, but it works its way through. So whereas the seed goes into the ground and it rises up into a tree, the leaven goes into lumps and then it gains ground by spreading through all the dough so that eventually all the dough is leavened and it causes the bread to rise. See, the righteous and redemptive rule of God is not only expansive to the corners of the earth, but it's also invasive to every corner of your soul. Every corner of your heart. Every thought that you think, every desire that you have, it spreads and it begins to invade personally. So the kingdom invades us personally, but it also invades us culturally. We'll take a look at those two things real quick this morning. Personally, how does the kingdom invade us personally? The kingdom of God invades us personally. It invades our hearts through our minds. You with me? It invades your heart through your mind. So it's not just an emotional experience that you have on a Sunday morning or at camp whenever you were like 13 and you were kind of white knuckling the pew because the preacher was talking to you and you didn't want to walk down. You had this emotional experience at 13. Or on a Sunday morning whenever you heard a sermon that really connected with you. It's not just an emotional experience, but it's an intellectual experience as you chew on the truth of who God is and His righteous and redemptive rule. And then that begins to filter down into the heart and affect the life. So it begins to invade and take ground in, in, in your life and in your heart and the way that you make decisions and the things that you value. The rule of God expands in your heart and works its way slowly through your thoughts so that you don't think the same way that you used to think, through your beliefs, through your values, through your affections, through the things that you love, through where your allegiances are, through what you adore and care for, works its way through all of that. It's invasive in your motives, and eventually it begins to spit itself out in your actions and behaviors. It's invasive. It gains ground in your life. Now listen, some of us may be in the room this morning, and we might be thinking, man, like, hold up for a second. Like, I, I'm, man, I, I was with you on the expansive part. Like, I love the idea of the branches spreading to the corners of the world and we all hold hands and sing, you know, we are the world, we are the children. I, I love that idea. We all stand in solidarity together, but the rule of God invading my life, affecting what, how I think, what I value, what I love, I mean, I'm just hold, hold up for just a second on that. Because some of us want to push back on the rule of God being invasive in our lives. But here's what I want you to, here's what I want you to remember. Let me respond to that by saying this. I want you to remember this. Is that his rule, his rule is not rigid, but it is redemptive. It is redemptive. In other words, he's trying to rescue you. 
He's trying to redeem you out of slavery and bondage and captivity to the ways of life that have been ingrained within you on account of your fallen nature, your fleshly desires, those things which once controlled you. Jesus is trying to rescue you and pull you out of that and set your feet on solid and stable ground. His rule in your life is redemptive. Listen, I've, I've never spoken to a single person whose regrets in their life from their past are not centered on their disobedience and their unrighteousness. Well, uh, so maybe I got that wrong. I've never spoken to a person who regrets the righteous and obedient things, the ways they've come under Jesus' rule and reign, but their regrets always center around the areas in which they've rebelled and run against his rule and reign in their lives. I never sat down with a person that said, you know what? I really regret not having viewed those images on the screen. But I've sat down with a lot of people who have deep regrets over the images that have passed across a smartphone or a tablet or a computer because there are some things they just can't unsee. See, Jesus is trying to rescue and redeem you from that. He's not just trying to stamp a rigid behavioral system on top of you. He's trying to rescue you out of slavery to your desires. I've never talked to a person, not a one, who says, you know what, I really regret not having drank too much that night that all my buddies got arrested. <laughs> I, I really regret, but, but I have talked to people who said, I really do regret having had one too many. Because there are some things you just can't undo. I've never talked to a person who said, you know, I really regret having given generously of my time and of my resources to serve and resource other people. But I have talked to lots of folks who said, you know what, I really regret having been so self-centered and selfish all those years and consuming everything for myself and never investing anything in other people and other places. Because there's some things you just can't return. And I've never talked to a person who has said, you know what, I really regret having sacrificially served and honored my wife or respected my husband for the last 30 years. But I've talked to a lot of people who have said, I regret having not done that. See, his reign is not rigid, it is redemptive. He's trying to rescue you out of you destroying yourself, out of me destroying myself. So when you want to push back on his, on his reign gaining ground in your life, what you're pushing back on is his redemptive power and presence to rescue you from yourself. His reign is ruled, the kingdom is invasive personally in our lives, but also culturally. See, the kingdom is invasive personally as it invades our hearts through our minds, but it's invasive culturally as it invades the culture through one life at a time. Not through big campaigns, but through individuals whose lives are being reoriented and reordered around the rule and reign of Jesus in their life. And you get enough people in a culture whose lives are being reoriented around the rule and reign of Jesus in their life, and it begins to have cultural ripple effects in the, in the places and people around you. Look, I love the story in Acts chapter 19 in the city of Ephesus. And, 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 and the, Paul's there and he's preaching the gospel. And Ephesus was a city that was filled rampant with idolatry. 
had all kinds of gods for all kinds of things. And the idol makers in that city, right, they made statues for everybody to place on their mantles or on their kitchen tables or at their bedside stands that they would pray to and they would worship in their homes or in the temples. And what happened in Acts chapter 19 is the gospel set roots in the city of Ephesus and in enough people's lives the kingdom of God was invading personally that the idol makers union got together and they were like, hey, whoa, like we can't profit off of these people's idolatry any longer. They were upset because they could no longer turn a profit off the people and what the gods they were worshiping. Because the kingdom of God had invaded enough people, it invaded their lives and their personal space, that it began to invade the cultural space around them. And it began to shape the way people interacted publicly, not just privately, in their lives. It was invading. Listen, man, and listen, we could stop right there and preach like a whole sermon on that, about what that might look like in our day. If the kingdom of God was so invasive in our lives, in the lives of Jesus' people, personally, that culturally, people can no longer profit off the idolatry of people any longer. What kind of businesses would go out of business on account of it? See, the kingdom is invasive personally and it's invasive culturally. Now, in the time that we have left this morning, here's what I want to do. Now, these, these parables, they, 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 they jump off the page begging to be lived and not just understood. Okay? It's one thing to understand these parables and go, what? The kingdom is expansive. The kingdom is invasive. So what? What does that mean for the way I live when I walk out these doors? And here's that's what I want to spend the rest of our time together this morning kind of unfolding for you. And there's just two things that I want to encourage you toward. And the first one is this is that you live as Jesus' ambassador. You live as Jesus' ambassador. The kingdom is expanding. It's expansive globally. It's moving from nation to nation, people group to people group, person to person, as the branches spread and grow and more and more people come under its shelter and shade. As they repent from sin and turn to and trust in Jesus and yield their life over to him and say, whatever you have, whatever you will, I'm in, Jesus. It's growing and it's expanding. And what we are called to do, if you're a Christian in this room this morning, is that you're called to live as an ambassador for that ever-expanding kingdom, the rule and reign of God in the lives and hearts of people. See, right now, in this era of history, churches are like embassies for the kingdom. You know what an embassy is? An embassy is an outpost of one nation on the soil of another nation. Right? It's where, it's where the customs and practices and values of your home nation get fleshed out in a host nation. And churches are like embassies in this world where the customs, values, and practices of our heavenly country get fleshed out in this earthly one. And those of us who claim the name of Christ, who are Christians, we are to live as ambassadors for this kingdom that is coming, this kingdom that has come and is coming. We're to live as ambassadors. In fact, Paul says this in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he speaks of God reconciling us to himself through Jesus and then giving us a ministry of reconciliation as we seek to be those who would see men and women and boys and girls reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. He says, you are ambassadors for Christ. God makes his appeal through you. 
So as an extension of his authority, as an extension of his wisdom, as an extension of his kindness, as an extension of his generosity, as an extension of his, of his, uh, of his, of his holiness, as an extension of all that God is, God's working through his church, through his people, as they live as ambassadors for Jesus in his ever-expanding kingdom. If you're a Christian in the room this morning, where are you at with that? <laughs> I was filling out an online survey earlier this week and I asked to recount the, the last several times I'd actually shared the gospel with someone outside of preaching from the stage or outside of a counseling appointment that I had with somebody who's a part of the church. And I have a confession to make. I had to think back 11 months to f- dig to find that. Where are you at? When's the last time you made an appeal, God made an appeal through you to someone who lived next door to you or across the street or at your school or in your workplace? This ever-expanding kingdom of God. Are you living as an ambassador? Listen, there's at least two ways you can do that. One is by praying. By praying, praying for opportunities, that God would open doors, that God would fill your mouths with words as you intersect the lives of people who are lost and hurting, who need shelter and refuge under the shade tree of God's righteous and redemptive rule. Are you praying for those kinds of opportunities? Is your prayer life filled with prayers about what job to take and, and what car to buy and what, what, what you know, to do to your house this year? Like for wisdom and all those things. I'm not saying you don't pray about those things, but is your prayer life also revolving around the expansive, righteous, and redemptive rule of Jesus in the lives of your family members, in the lives of your neighbors, in the lives of your friends, in the lives of your coworkers? Are you praying for those kinds of opportunities? Praying that seeds would be planted and saplings would grow in their hearts. The second way that you can be a part of this is do, of, of living as an ambassador is by not only praying but planting. You plant seeds individually and personally in people's lives as you try and turn conversations toward the truth of the gospel. Listen, almost everywhere I go these days, people are like, man, can you believe, can you believe the election coming up? <laughs> and part of me is like, no, not really. <laughs> but, but, but a part of me thinks, what, what, what valuable opportunities to try and turn that toward in, in the conversation and direct that toward the understanding that, you know what, what we need as men and women, no matter what, whether we live under a dictatorship or a democracy, is that we need a king to rule and reign our hearts, to give us peace in the midst of turmoil, to give us hope in the midst of despair. When was the last time you turned a conversation in that direction and lived as an ambassador? The second thing I would say is this. Not only live as Jesus' ambassador, but live under Jesus' authority. You live under Jesus' authority. See, it's possible to be an expert on a culture, right? There's lots of folks who study ancient cultures and civilizations. They might be an expert on that culture. They might be an expert on their values, the way they raised their kids, the way they, they, they passed laws, their governmental structures, while not really being a citizen of that culture and bending their knee to the king who rules over those citizens. You can be an expert on a culture, but not really a part of it, a citizen of it. 
And I wonder oftentimes about my life and about many of the lives of folks who fill churches all across our country on Sunday mornings. If maybe we are, there's lots of folks who are experts on the kingdom of God, but they're not really living as citizens of the kingdom of God. They're not really living under Jesus' authority. See, Jesus is king, and there's none who can stand up to his might, and none that is beyond his mercy. So here's a question for you. Are you bending your knee, right? Are you submitting, bending your knee to the merciful might of Jesus to save you? And are you bending your knee to the merciful might of Jesus to sanctify you and change you and form you and reorient you in your life? In other words, are you allowing that invasion of the kingdom of God, the righteous and redemptive rule of Jesus in your life to come in and rescue you? Some of us may have been trying to rescue ourselves all our lives through our achievements, through our possessions, through our promotions, through our positions, through the awards that we win, through the accolades that we receive, through the attaboys and pats on the back. We may be trying to save ourselves and make ourselves something worthy to say to God, you should accept me now. Rather than bending your knee and saying, I have nothing and you have everything. And Jesus, in your might and mercy, you have come to save and rescue me. And then once we bend our knee in salvation, we bend our knee daily in sanctification as Jesus begins to pluck and pull and plant and harvest in our lives. Where in your life right now are you resisting Jesus' redemptive rule in your life. Maybe it's in your attitudes toward people of different races. Maybe it's in your attitudes toward people from different denominations or churches. Maybe it's in the way that you treat your kids. And maybe some of you dads are exasperating them, as Paul admonishes us not to do. Maybe Jesus is coming to rescue you from sin and bring you salvation. Maybe Jesus is this morning aiming to rescue you from complacency and set your life ablaze on mission. Maybe this morning Jesus is aiming to rescue you from greed and bring you to a place of generosity, leveraging your time and your resources for the sake of His kingdom's expansion and invasion. Maybe Jesus is aiming this morning to rescue you from isolation and to knit you together with a body of believers in such a way that there is honesty and transparency and authenticity that begins to mark those relationships as they grow together in Christ. Maybe this morning Jesus is aiming to rescue you from secrecy and hypocrisy that you've been hiding things from your, from your spouse, maybe you've been hiding things from your kids, maybe you've been hiding things from your friends, maybe there are some things that you have suppressed for so long that you've been hiding them even from yourself, and that Jesus is coming to rescue you, to redeem you, that you would bend your knee to him and live under his authority, to rescue you from foolishness and give you wisdom. Maybe all kinds of things this morning that Jesus is wanting to pluck out of your life and plant into it as you bend your knee and come under his authority and it begins to expand and that leaven begins to work its way through your life. I don't know where it is for you this morning, but my hunch is, because I think I know a little bit about human nature because I am one, is that we've all got something where we've been pushing back against Jesus' righteous and redemptive rule. 
and he wants to rescue you. And I'll close with this. If you will bend your knee this morning, one of the effects of that in your life will be that you will become a person who is no longer, who is no longer transparent or see-through, but you become a person who is substantial and solid. Have you ever, have you ever noticed that those people in your life that, that seems like they're bending their knee to the rule and reign of Jesus are those individuals who seem to be the most weighty and substantial and solid. It's like when the wind blows, it doesn't blow them over, but it blows around them. It might have effects on them, but it doesn't topple them down because there's, there's a weightiness to their character because they've submitted their lives to the rule and reign of Jesus I love C.S. Lewis's um, little, little essay called The Great Divorce, where he kind of imagines what it would be like for these tourists in, in what he calls Greytown in the book, which is kind of a picture of hell, who would get on a bus and they would travel to the foothills of heaven. And in the foothills of heaven, these go, they're, they're like ghosts who come from Greytown, and they're see-through, they're transparent. You can you see right through them. Right? And, 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 and in the plains and the foothills of heaven, even when it rains, it kind of shoots holes through them like machine guns because they're just not very weighty or substantial people. All their life, they've kind of been centered on self. But when they get to the foothills of heaven and they begin to see what are called some of the solids in Lewis's writing, like they're, they're, they're amazed by them because you, they're like substantial and weighty when they walk. They like crush the grass under their feet. Whereas those who are opaque and kind of trans, or those who are kind of transparent, they walk and the grass sticks through their feet and hurts them and wounds them. And there's this image in the book of the, the, the men and women who visit from Greytown up to the foothills of heaven. The closer they get to the mountains, the less, the less transparent they become. See, as the kingdom of heaven invades your life more and more and more. All of a sudden, there's no longer any fear of the, the, the things that you've been hiding and the secrecy in which you've been living. And all that comes out. And when it comes out, all of a sudden, the honesty and transparency and authenticity begins to have this weighty effect in your life. So that when you walk, the grass crushes under your feet and doesn't puncture. God is able, God is able to make you into a person with substance. No matter how hollow you have felt all your life. The kingdom is like a mustard seed that expands to take in all kinds of people from all kinds of places and it's like leaven that spreads its way throughout lives and cultures to shape them into places that are honoring to Jesus, bending their knee to him, submitting to his authority. This morning, if you're not a Christian, I want to invite you. I want to invite you to take a step towards him. He's not there to place a rigid box around your life. He's there to redeem and rescue you and lead you to joy and life and peace everlasting and deep substance where all you have maybe known has been hollowness. And if you are a Christian, I want to invite you this morning to remember that Jesus, he bent his knee for you. In the Garden of Gethsemane, whenever Jesus comes before the Father, he says, Father, not my will, 
but yours as he's on his knees sweating drops of blood. He bent his knee for you so that you might come into his kingdom and enjoy his righteous and redemptive rule and be rescued and be put back together in his image. The kingdom is expansive, but it's also invasive. My prayer is that God would be pleased to take something that's small and grow it. And that he'd be pleased to invade all of our lives with his leaven. Would you pray with me? Father, today we come thanking you for your grace and kindness and mercy in Jesus. That God, if his rule had just been righteous, that we would be doomed, but it was also redemptive and so we can be rescued and delivered. God, may this, in the coming weeks, may we not look to candidates and platforms and elections to save us, but may we look to a king May we look to a king who has come to lay his life down, come to give of himself, come to shed his blood and have his body broken so that his righteous and redemptive rule might expand to the corners of the world. And God, may we at Redeemer be a part of that, but also so that his righteous and redemptive rule might invade our personal space. And that his leaven might work through our lives in a way that would cause us to rise as people who when the wind blows, it doesn't blow through us and it doesn't blow us over, but it splits around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.